U.S. farmers and ranchers in action would like to recognize the sponsors of the 2020 Honor the Harvest Forum. Welcome to Farm Food Facts, where every farmer, every acre, and every voice matter. For today, Wednesday, August 12th, 2020, I'm your host, Phil Lempert. Rob Dungowski is a partner at Ernst & Young with over 20 years of experience serving clients in the food and agribusiness sectors. Rob has helped clients develop growth strategies, complete buy-side and sell-side transactions, design digital strategies, and lead significant enterprise transformations. He's the founder of the Ernst & Young Global Agribusiness Center, and he leads Ernst & Young professionals in all regions of the world to serve their agribusiness clients. With many aspects of the agribusiness already in a state of flux, COVID-19 is dramatically impacting key areas of value chain in unimaginable ways, he says. Extraordinary changes in consumer behavior and unforeseen labor complications compound pressures on business leaders to keep the organization operating amid one of the most chaotic business environments in history. How organizations pivot to address these unprecedented conditions will significantly shape what comes next. What changes will have lasting power? How can businesses be ready for the new normal that emerges post-crisis? And to get those answers, Rob joins us today. Rob, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Thank you, Phil. It's a pleasure to join you. So, Rob, you've been doing this a while. Give me some background on how ag economics have changed over the past five years to put it all in context. Yeah, Phil, I mean, we've seen, you know, farm gate profit, you know, continue to struggle for the last several years. And we went from an environment not too long ago where we were, we were trading $8 corn and, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of room at, at the, at the gate for a lot of, a lot of activities, a lot of investment and a lot of attraction to the, to the, uh, to the industry with commodity prices being where they've been, um, you know, interest rates have helped a little bit, but you know, capital intensity has, has struggled because you know, just not not a lot not left a lot left at the farm gate. So, I think the economics have been a have been a real challenge. I think there was real hope that 2020 was a turning point year. Whether you're talking about uh, in the pork industry or in the row crop industry, I think we were really looking for 2020 to be one of those turnaround years. And obviously, this pandemic got got right in the middle of it. And I think we've seen it go uh, you know the other direction. So I don't know if you saw, but in this past uh, Sunday's New York Times, there was a great story, uh, an unfortunate story, but a great story about a farmer, small farmer, um, who is now making more money on social media than he does on the farm. Um, he, he has a blog, he does videos, and he's now making about $4,000 a month um, from that versus on the farm where he's losing about $6,000 a year. Um, one of the biggest issues that I'm deeply concerned about is labor. On the farm, in meat packing plants, in supermarkets, in restaurants, what are you seeing as the workforce issues for the future? Yeah, I think it's a great story you know, that, that you highlight in that, you know, what it really highlights is that farmers are some of the most, you know, the greatest innovators we've had. You know, they figured out how to, how to get you know crops in the ground, get them out, make money, do the things they need to do, and they just wear so many hats that that I, I don't think most of us realize. So I think that's a real real great story to highlight. That I think when you look at the labor issues, I think they're really twofold. So one is we still rely on a lot of manual labor for you know harvest of specialty crops, you know soft fruits, you know that don't lend themselves easy to to full automation. 
And so how do we manage the immigration issues, the migrant labor forces to to harvest some of those those specialty crops? I think that becomes, you know, is and will continue to be a, a pretty key issue. I think the other issue is how do we attract talent, young talent to enter the agriculture workforce, you know, whether that goes through um, formal education and into the workforce, you know, but how do we how do we attract them into the industry so that we're getting the best talent into into a vital sector of our economy? You know, it's it's easy to say, you know, let's let's go build software and video games and things like that. But how do we make the the ag and food industry something that's attractive to our youth? I think is is more of a long term play we need to be thinking about. So how do we do that? If if I take a look at uh, somebody going to college or graduating from college and say, hey, you should be in agriculture. And then they do some research, simple Googling. And they say, you know, people are losing money. It's a hard job. I'm working 12 or 14 hours a day. Um, you know, I've got labor issues. I have to spend, I don't know, half a million dollars uh, to buy, you know, a, a tractor or a combine or, or something. Um, how, how do we change this conversation to, to get them excited about joining our industry? Yeah, I, I think first off, we, we recognize that in agriculture, most of the folks, the farmers and ranchers that work the fields every day, they're a humble group, you know. And so getting them to tout their stories, tout the attractions, what they do, it just, it, it's kind of contrary to their, their, their nature in most, most cases. So, but it's needed. We need to explain to our, to our young folks of why this is a, a pretty cool industry, you know, and I think as uh, purpose becomes a really important factor going forward, particularly for our Gen Z and, and younger generations, purpose is driving a lot of behaviors that maybe the baby boomers, you know, didn't put as much emphasis on. So I think explaining, you know, how this industry aligns to their purpose, and then frankly, really understated is, is how kind of technology advanced this industry is and how, how technology advanced it could be. You know, so we're all kind of wild about, uh, you know, driverless cars. And, and I think that's an interesting thing to think about in the future. But, you know, we've had auto steer on tractors for years, you know, and we've had GPS, we've had mapping and, you know, uh, multi-spectral mapping and all kinds of things in the ag industry that, you know, some industries are just catching up, catching up to where there's other technologies that maybe I can, you know, continue to capitalize on that we haven't gotten there yet. So if I'm a young person, I'm thinking, this is actually an industry I didn't know a whole lot about. Lines with my purpose and is actually far more high tech and innovative than I ever thought. Well, you, you mentioned it twice uh, and I hadn't thought about this. Um, aligning with their values, with their purposes. When we look at um, Generation Z um, in particular, who are very concerned about the environment, having the kind of uh, technology tools that, that you just described and having people have a passion to save the planet um, by, by the products that they buy, the ingredients that they look for and so on, really does put, put the whole story into a very different place. Um, and again, let's not forget, this generation grew up with cell phones, they grew up with technology, they're not afraid of it. Um, so that's a very interesting approach and a very good story. Thank you for that. Um, I guess yeah, the topic that I have to bring up is COVID-19. And what kind of disruption did um, COVID-19 have on economics and agriculture and why? Yeah, I, the, the, I guess the first thing is the story is not, not yet 
fully written, right? So right. the impact is still going to kind of unfold here as we go forward. But, you know, a few of the things that definitely highlighted is the fact that we, we have the, the most efficient system in the world when it comes to food. You know, we right. spend less than 8% of our incomes on average on, on food. It's the lowest in the world. It's an incredibly efficient system. But what, it, what COVID highlighted were a few things. One is that we've got a system that bent and it bent really far, but it didn't break. You know, that brought to the resilience of farmers and ranchers, to all the folks, you know, from the farm all the way through to the distribution cycle to where consumers buy, whether that's restaurants or grocery, um, we showed, you know, a lot of flexibility to make things happen. But I think now we look at it and go, we were close. Let's maybe not do that again. And, you know, let's build more resiliency into the system, which may offset some of our efficiencies as we, as we look at it. But resiliency may become more important as we go forward. So, so that could come in the form of sustainability, could come in the form of shorter supply chains, uh, could, you know, instead of just in time, could be just in case inventory. You know, so lots of lots of innovations, I think, are yet to come from, from COVID. But I think, you know, the, definitely the one thing that I walk away from is consumers got a better appreciation for those who bring food to their table and they want to know more about their food. Where did it come from? How is it treated? You know, who's producing this and what do they stand for? And I think some of those things were pre-COVID and I think COVID is just making those more, more important and more in that limelight than ever before. You talk about, you know, shortening the supply chain. Um, clearly, when a consumer um, and a retailer saw the stories about, you know, dumping milk in the Midwest or, you know, having to euthanize cattles and hogs because of transportation, because there weren't trucks in the right place at the right time, um, I think that also opened up a lot of people's eyes. And, and really, to your point about a shorter supply chain, when we think about, you know, uh, I'm, I'm in California, love California, 95% of all of our lettuces come from California and are shipped cross country. That's absurd when you really think about it um, with respect to the lettuce, you know, farmers in, in California. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot more advances in indoor farms. Uh, presumably, um, there, there'll be some open office space as people continue to work at home. Do you see the point where we're going to start to see indoor farms, um, you know, in New York City or in Chicago, in, in part of these empty office buildings as a way to shorten that supply chain? Yeah, I think the whole area of controlled environment agriculture, whether it's indoor vertical, greenhouse, rooftop, you know, that whole area where you're starting to control the environment is a, uh, is it's a great option as we look forward. Now, do I think we're going to put 97 million acres of corn under, uh, you know, in a controlled environment? Probably not. Um, but short of supply chains in a vertical, you know, urban environment, absolutely. I mean, uh, the efficiencies of lighting and ventilation systems have all, all you know, put that forward. Um, you know, the consumers wanting more sustainability puts that forward. So, I mean, I think we're at a, a precipice of change in, in, that, in that particular area. You know, I think the other is, you know, when you think about some of the struggles that got highlighted here, you know, it was about the last mile pivot. It was the, the challenge for all that food supply running through the system that was geared for food service to go to restaurants or, you know, or, you know, uh, large cafeterias. And all of a sudden we said, those are closed and let's pivot over to grocery or let's pivot over to something else where consumers are going to buy. Our inability to pivot there for that last mile is, is really the, the bottleneck that, that got created. You know, I was, on the phone with a, um, a large beer distributor earlier today, and they said, you know, the, 
the shift for them is they went from kegs to cans. You know, you think about that. We just we say we can't have gatherings of 50 more people. That means people are drinking out of a can versus a keg. You know, and I mean, simple things like that. I think we just take for granted, like it can just shift easily. But it's um, it's those last mile pivots. I think they're going to be really, really fundamental going forward. And I, and I also think coming out of this, uh, to your earlier point, that consumers, retailers, restaurateurs got, got a peek under the hood of how complicated uh, our food system really is. And I think they have a new appreciation for it. Um, for the first time in so many people's lives, they walked into a grocery store and saw empty shelves and they, you know, panicked. They, they hoarded, you know, everything that they could buy, even though they might not have liked it. Uh, they were afraid. And, and I think that to your point, we come out of this with a whole new appreciation for farmers, for ranchers, for, for the supply chain. Um, so with that, you know, how are farmers managing economic risk um, during this period and in the future? And, you know, is the profit pool shifting and where's it headed? Yeah, I think for, you know, one, one thought is just for the American consumers that saw for the first time there wasn't meat in the freezer or some of the food on the shelves, you know, part of that is welcome to the real world. That that, that actually happens <laughs> across the world, right? And so right. again, we should all be very, you know, grateful for the the hard work that puts food in the freezers and on the grocery shelves every single day. So hats off to unsung heroes who I think are our farmers and ranchers in in this country, right? Um, but I think how do we manage the economics? I think profit pools are going to shift. I think you know the consumers are speaking speaking really, really loud right now. They want to know who's producing their food. You know, so if you stand in between a producer and a consumer, you really got to challenge what's your role, what's your value that you're adding. And if you're just moving bulk food from one warehouse to a distribution center to a restaurant, or, you know, what what is your role? What value are you adding into the process is going to continue to be under under scrutiny going forward. So I think that's a, that's a big piece of, of managing economics. And we'll see those profit pools shift accordingly. I think when you look at producers, getting better demand signals at the consumer level of what they want and how they want it is going to be paramount. And that's a data conversation. That's about mm -hmm. trusting data flowing right and left through the value chain so that they get those signals and they can produce on time and, and at the qualities they're expecting. So I think those are those are a couple things that manage the economics. Then I think the relationships that you know um, suppliers to, to farmers and ranchers have starts to lend itself to different kind of operating models. You know, we've seen that in the row crop industry where we see things like, you know, outcome-based or risk-based pricing where it's no longer about selling bags and jugs. It's about let's partner up and let's get an outcome here that's good for everybody. So I, I think those kinds of pricing models and relationship models are, are really a, a, a great lever in managing everyone's economics and risk. So do farmers and ranchers um, have the tools that they need to, to manage risk, to, to get to where you're describing they need to be? Not, not across the board. I mean, let, the, there's a lot of technology, there's a lot of tools out there, um, but when you're, you're trading on $3 corn, you know, it's hard to make the investment that you really need to make. And there's so many options. Your appetite to you know, take a flyer or risk on an, on an investment is really low. I mean, you, you're, you're really scraping by you know, the difference between, you know, corn trading at 280 and corn trading at 340 is, I mean, is massive, you know, if, if you're running a farm. So the appetite for investment is really low. I, I think the tools, we've we've kind of created tools that are 
actor specific. So if this is good for a row crop farmer, or this is good for a, you know, a food manufacturer, I, I think we need to start to see greater collaboration across the value chain and find tools that bring value through the system versus individual actors. And I think that's where we really start to unlock some incredible opportunities. You know, we, we've, we've launched a program called EY Innovation Studio, which is focused strictly on creating value across the, you know, across the chain, putting people together in the same room, focused on a problem and saying, let's figure this one out together. And I, I think that's ultimately what we're going to need going forward. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I recently had a conversation with a mushroom grower and uh, big operation. And what he shared with me, uh, he and his daughter run it, um, is that the demand for mushrooms in the US is greater than production, which I didn't know, uh, which is why we now have a lot of mushrooms coming in from Canada. So I said you know, to him, well, why don't you just build you know, more of these mushroom growing rooms, um, if you would, so, so that you can meet that demand. And to your point, he said, I don't have the money. Yeah. I just don't have the money. So, you know, we, we have these situations where demand is more than output. Uh, we have uh, the other situation as well. Um, and to your point of that collaboration, um, to your point of what you do every day is, is figuring out how to get farmers and ranchers money or investment or bank loans or, or whatever they need to do to grow and to survive. Um, what does an economically sustainable future look like in agriculture and in food? Well, it, you know, I think part of it is you got to really understand the, the customer segments that you want to serve, you know, and let's face it, you know, my generation was all about get the most convenient food and the, the cheapest food, you know, and it was all about kind of three meals a day and you're, and you're kind of off to the, off to the races. Right. Younger generations say, wait, I, I know my genetic makeup. I know what kind of diet I want to you know, uh, have, I know how different foods affect my health and what ultimately I want out of my health. And it's changing things a lot. It's focused, it really shifts to being like a hyper segmented consumer population of exactly who do you want to serve and how do you want to serve them. And then I think that starts to flow through the system all the way back to producers. I mean, you know, as an example, I mean, if we want to move to local, we want to have fresh and we don't want preservatives and we want to really reduce kind of the, the chemicals on plants, then you end up not getting fresh apples in Minneapolis in January. It's just, it doesn't happen. Right? right. And so we need to think about, you know, what are those things? And if you do want certain things, are you willing to pay more? So it's not just profit pool shifts across the actors, the value chain. It's also looking at the generational shifts of how they want to spend money. You know, I think the trend line would say, our Gen Z's, you know, probably care less about spending, you know, on a McMansion in the suburb, but they're okay spending eight dollars on a latte because they value food more than more than housing. You know, so those kinds of shifting uh, spending shifts, I think, are also fundamental to the food equation. Do you think that finally, as a result of everything that, that you've described, um, we're going to start paying a fair price for our foods? because we have the cheapest food supply in the world, as, as you point out correctly. Um, we went for efficiency. Um, we store apples for a year or a year and a half uh, before they get to the grocery store. And one of the things that I've always talked about that I would love to see is that our supermarkets just sell produce um, when it's in season. 
because if it's in season, it's less expensive, it tastes better, and it's more nutritious. Uh, do you think that all of what we've talked about can finally force that to happen? Yeah, we say fair price. I think consumers determine fair price, right? And so uh, some are going to be super satisfied with the way it is, and some are saying, you know, I'm willing to pay more for uh, you know, something that's in season and fresh. And I, I think we need to afford them all those options. Regardless, that will, will create fundamental systemic structural change across the food industry because it's going to trickle back that for those that want something fresh and local and seasonal, that's going to have to be produced, you know, in a local local format. That's no longer means you can put a label on it. It's fresh because and it's been frozen for a year, you know, and I think that kind of environment starts to kind of fuel the fire of let consumers vote with their wallet. And if they're willing to pay more for stuff they value, then let, let's give them what they want. I, I think that's ultimately kind of how the system will unfold. Look into your crystal ball, and yeah. I'm sure that you're asked to do that probably 100 times a day from everybody in, in your organization and all your clients. But if there was one thing that you really think is critical for um, agribusiness today to, to start doing, what would that be? Yeah, I, I think there's got to, underlying all of this, you know, consumers going back to producers, challenging the nodes that are in between and how we, how we interoperate, you know, fundamental that is fundamental to that is the data we have and the data we share and the data you share is really based upon trust, you know? And so as we look at that trust equation across the value chain, I think it really becomes the, the, the unlocking element of how can we start to become better and smarter and more informed of what we do. You know, I mean, we, we look at, we want fresh food, you know, and you go, how do you know it's fresh? You know, you know, cause, and how do you know it's organic? You know, are those things, you know, high integrity that make you want to purchase more? And I think consumers are going to want that information. They're going to want to say, I'm willing to pay 25% more, but is it really what I'm getting? You know, am I sure? You know, I think generally there's a distrust for large institutions right now. And the way you get through that is by, you know, transparency and more exposure to what's, what's there. You know, I, I think when I look at, you know, I love your concept of let's just grow what's in season. And when we look at our food system reimagined platform, I mean, we really envision a, you know, a grocery store format that splits in two, you know, and on one side, it's a live store on the other side, it's a dark store, you know, and some could say the center of the store is what goes into the dark store, you know, and that becomes a, you know, send it to me two hours or less, but in, to make any of that work is going to have to drive some efficiency through supply chain and through data and all that. So I, I think at the end of the day, I think this, this unlocking this data equation becomes a, a, a just a massive element to this. Well, Rob, thank you for everything that you do every day uh, for your organization, for agribusiness and your clients. And thank you for joining us today on Farm Food Facts. Thank you, Phil. It's a pleasure. U.S. Farmers and Ranchers in Action would like to recognize the sponsors of the 2020 Honor the Harvest Forum. Our movement sponsors, United Soybean Board and National Pork Board. Our presenting sponsors, Wells Fargo and Cargill. Our gold sponsors, Bayer, Dairy West, Nebraska Soybean Board, McDonald's, Nutrien, and the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research. Our bronze sponsors, Purina and Ernst & Young our youth sponsor, Ruan, and our donor sponsor, Tyson. For more information on all things food and agriculture, 
please visit us at usfarmersandranchers.org. We'll also be sure to look out for us on Facebook at U.S. Farmers and Ranchers and on Twitter at USFRA. Until next time.